You know, and we've had Christian custody, stolen children, conditions of life. In fact, everything gets defined as genocide under the United Nations Convention. Australia's guilty of it, and there's no doubt about it. What's going on here? It's a crime scene, Australia. We've got to do something about it. Hello, welcome to Survival Guide on 88.9 FM Radio Skid Row. Um, we're up to episode 8 on this fine experience talking to you about this city. You're listening to Joel. And Lorna. And um, I can't hear my mic. I'm on the wrong mic. It was my vault. I don't know whose fault that was. But we're on the mic and the mics are working and we're back for another episode of Survival Guide. That was Uncle Robbie Thorpe there from um, what year was that? When was that? That was at, a, that was at the, um, the protest down in, um, um, in 2010. Mm, guilty, guilty, guilty from 1788 till today. Yeah. Guilty. Um, let's talk about white guilt. Let's talk about where it comes from. Um, where it all comes from, which is theft, theft of land, genocide, denial of humanness, um, a whole lot of stuff. But we've actually... Breaking news. We've actually got some breaking news. Today, um, Communities Plus, the new arm of the federal government that is running the public housing, social housing and community housing, um, departments... Uh, as it slowly is eroded and privatised, um, have so announced... So before, before you get too gassed up, I think you just need to go back and just explain this Communities Plus thing, right? It's just like kind of come out of nowhere as a new kind of um, government. So Communities Plus is the model that the government have established as the networking uh, mechanism that connects all of the private companies that will now be providing social and community housing. Mm. Um they are slowly divesting, well, slowly, but quite rapidly divesting from the idea of the welfare state. The public housing is going it, in the cover in the current government's um, kind of timeline. They are slowly eroding and, and divesting from public welfare and handing this over to the kind of private sector. Mm. Um, like we talked about in the economics episode, yep, this right. is this is the kind of the mechanisms of the neoliberal kind of ethic of how we deal with these problems we use every moment where the system looks like it's failing to re-regulate and make it open for more um, extraction by um, private interests Um, this isn't something that we condone of course but this is the way that we have been made um, this is the way that has become apparent to all of us in the last couple I of weeks. Just, I just know that people, um, you know, that are picking this up, they probably will be really sideswiped by the fact that it says Communities Plus at the top instead exactly. of exactly. Um, Department of Housing, um, uh, any of that sort of stuff. So exactly. I just thought I'd just just capture that audience while we're there. Mm. So what what exactly are this new body that that is in charge of these plans are doing and what have we i guess we've we've got our hands on some stuff that's been dropped today mm. it's very um, interesting yeah so i think funnily enough uh the communities plus are the network that will be dealing with um people's claims and people's um connection to the kind of the private sector that are uh, that are providing public and social housing or not public social and community housing 
Um, but it was, you know, it was originally land and housing and their private development company, Urban Growth, that were in charge of steering the redevelopment of Redfern and Waterloo. Um, what is what has now happened is Communities Plus, as a as a group, have released the three options that were um, set in the timeline to come after the uh, consultation and the visioning for the redevelopment of Redfern and Waterloo. Those three options were released and announced today. Um, and we're going to talk about that a bit more later on today. I think I'm a bit gassed up about it. This is the thing, this is the stuff that um, kind of brought you and I together first mm. off is the work that we were both doing in the community in Waterloo um, last year throughout all of 2017, some of 2016 as well, um, l- looking at uh, the way that the government has sort of steamrolled this whole process mm. and it's, mm. uh, it's, it's, there's a mm. lot to unpack um, we're not going to do it all here today, but mm. there's something that we need to talk about. We've got a few more episodes to do mm. that, um, and it is huge, and it, it is something that isn't going away, mm. um, you know, so we will get to unpacking that. I just remember a lot of the time, even at those meetings, I just felt like I was bashing my head up against a brick wall just saying, you know, if if these new Waterloo, these new plans don't centre Aboriginal narratives and Aboriginal visibility in our voices then they're pretty much just dispossessing us all over again in a place where descendants of dispossessed people have been allowed to build a community. Exactly. Um, you know, and that's what it's really, really comes down to and why it's so important to maintain this voice, mm. why it's been so valuable to have this show to mm. ele- elevate that voice, that, you know, the conversations that we've been having. Um, so, again... As a recap, I guess that's sort of kind of contextualizing what's happened today. But it's also it's a really it's it's going to bring us it's bringing us back to why we're here talking to you today, and and what we're trying to do with this show and how we're trying to unpack the logic of colonization and its relationship to gentrification and vice versa. These lessons that are being done on and played through history back onto indigenous peoples, marginalized groups in our cities, um, are all informed by colonial logics and Mm. we want to talk about that today today's episode is about planning and the way that planning operates and has operated historically as an inherently racialized and gendered um, colonial system and that our planning laws up until today the 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 things that um, dictate to us the ways that we can use land and this is dictating onto us as well indigenous people how they can use land in a colonized space in a settled um, country an occupied country um and how inherently those logics that we experience today are connected to that disp- that first dispossession on arrival. The the the. And it all comes back to theft of land. Mm, exactly, exactly. So. Um, and everybody else, uh, benefiting from that theft mm, of land exactly. as well. Um, and I think a lot of people really avoid looking at that critically and finding and finding their space and their place in this whole conversation as well. Um. And which is what we've been talking about in past episodes mm. about people's individual complicity in mm. all of this, mm. what she's going to do after Redfern has given the whole country so much, um, you know, what he's going to give back when we need help right now. Where's mm. the solidarity? Where's, you know, the information sharing and the conversations happening? Because we really hope that we are spurring that. We yeah. hope that we're, in, uh, you know, initiating this and um, in other people's relationships in their homes and stuff like that because this is the stuff that we're having to unpack because we're just getting chucked at every all the time exactly. literally exactly these plans keep changing mm. 
And, and it's a, it's it's distract, it's divide and conquer. It's the tactics of the colonizer, the the war tactics that they use against us. And we need to learn from history and look back on these mm-hmm. things that we've experienced mm-hmm. worldwide, but also across this nation um, in relationship to the ways that the mm. the colonial settler operates. So I think I was just going to say every I think I find it funny that every almost every episode that we have had has been entailing and unpacking how everything that we are experiencing right now in Waterloo and Redfern is very much um, still that terra, terra nullius. Exactly, exactly. So that's, exact, that's beautiful. That's exactly where I was going to take this. I think the practices of planning, you know, they've been utilised in many, many ways and, and they inform, they, they've been, the practices of planning have been informed by the, the nature and the um, dispossessive uh, strategies of the colonizers from up to arrival but to talk about the dispossessive strategies of the settler colonial narrative in australia we must go back mm-hmm. we must go back in time mm-hmm. we've been doing this with every episode we've got to go back it all in time. comes back to it you know yes. it really does so we've got to go back to that original myth what is that original myth the terra nullius empty land no man no men here mm, exactly um, the australian i mean and it's that's the thing it's uh we have this terra nullius is, wasn't even an illegal doctrine when it arrived when on arrival, when people came to this country, uh, white people came to mm. this country. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's very interesting how it's become this kind of very intrinsic uh, part of our own historical legitimizing of a claim to space. Mm. Um, not just ourselves, I think Australia um, as mm. a wider as a wider nation, um, not Indigenous people, obviously. And there have been many, 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 many historical battles up against this. We're talking about the frontier wars once people realised that these white fellows weren't going away. You know, once they realised that they were going to stay here and that they were going to build fences around their land and push people off. I think the frontier off. wars goes back to actual government sanctioned genocide mm, though, you mm. know. I think that that needs to be said in mm, here mm. that there was actual government sanctioned expeditions gone out there to massacre our people. Waterloo Creek being one of one prominent one where white men were actually given the status of sheriff to be able to round up aboriginal people and kill them. Mm. You know, in a in in our last episode we were talking about how in the Kimberleys area there was up until 1960, there's still slavery evident. There's mm. pictures of Aboriginal people being chained to one another and mm. being dragged from homestead to homestead. Um, you know, all of this stuff is there, and and it has to be it has to be laid out. You know, in in front of everybody. I think it all there's there's a lot of these policies um, that we are talking about, and we are glazing over it. You know, how hard is it to talk about 230 years of history and then thousands of years of colonial history that's been forced on us mm. um, that we still have to navigate through? Mm. Mm. Um, I think. Yeah. Sorry to just cut you off there. No, it's um, fine. I just, I just really needed to, to make that clear is that there has been government-sanctioned massacres and genocide and ongoing cultural genocide mm. and dispossession again with these breaking news that, we, exactly. um, that we've just found. So, so Terra Nullius, the myth. Terra Nullius, the myth. We're, we, returning, we're returning to the myth today because I think it's interesting. It's not um, up until very recently with the the kind of reappropriation of the words terra nullius by um, artist Soda Jerk in the film that they made, which was denied um, showing within the Ian Potter galleries <laughs> down in Melbourne because it was anti-Australian. It was we, so ha- good. we haven't heard this term for a while, but, um, you know, it's 
it's an interesting, you know, and I think I think a lot of people believe that, you know, it's it's gone from our history. We expunged it when the Australian High Court, um, in its famous Mabo ruling, was praised for overturning the founding legal fiction to make room for recognising prior ownership of occupation mm. of Aboriginal land mm. and 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 Indigenous Indigenous. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mm. peoples on their land. But Terra Nullius has assumed a really specific place in Australian public discourse as a distinct legal mechanism that has allowed um, white people to occupy this continent. Um, but like I said before, Terra Nullius was not legal doctrine in, the opera- in, in, in any operation within any of the colonies at the time of the landing of um, Captain Cook or even when um, Arthur Phillip arrived with the first fleet. In it's 1788, it's Captain Cook was in 1770, yep, 1788. Exactly. Um, there was a, a parliamentary hearing um, and Daniel Salander was the person that reminded the uh, English King George about the Great Southland that um, was mapped. Mm. So, you know, there's huge, huge time time lapses between these things. Um, you know, you can't go and claim a whole landscape when you've planted your flag on an island. Um, I'm sorry, that should only just mm. be, you know, stuck to that island. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of inconsistencies within this law. There's a lot of lies. It is a lie. The whole thing is a lie because we know damn well that there was people here. Mm. We are we're here. Exactly. That's kind of the point, right? When we talk about Telenalis, we're also reinforcing very genocidal ideals. Mm. And, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to highlight with the points that we're making in this show is this the, the Redfern Waterloo development as well as the Greater Sydney um, Commission's plan for the planning of the new three cities um, over the mm. next over the next 30 years. What we're trying to do today is show you how intrinsically linked the ethics and and the logics of planning in Australia are connected to the dispossession, the genocide, the ongoing tactical assaults against Indigenous sovereignty on this country. And um, Terranalius, as a cultural idea, it exposes a wide set of mechanisms, technologies of power, structures, regulations and activities um, that realised the theft of Indigenous land and created the conditions for continued settler occupation. Mm. You know, the basic, like we said, the basic practices of planning were critical to the import, and really important to this work. And it's informed by these racist, these very racist sociocultural assumptions that were made possible by thinking of this continent as empty. Mm. When we knew, when they knew that there were people here. Mm. Um, and, and largely has been unshaken in, in Australian history up until this point. Um, what do you mean by unshaken? Unshaken as in the, the, the white Western narratives about the way Indigenous people were um, dispersed or dispossessed of their land mm. is still very much intact as, oh, well, no, they didn't use the land the right way and they didn't, yeah, they didn't yeah. have a connection. They didn't build fences. They didn't build houses. They didn't plant mm. crops. Mm-hmm. They didn't do these things that we did. Therefore, they didn't use the land. And that's what's in, in kind of within the what, it, what it's actually called. Um, this was first written by philosopher, well not first written, but written down by ph- philosopher John Locke in the um, 17th century is the uh, method of enclosure or this idea that you only actually uh, obtain ownership of land through the application of labour. Mm. And that I think when on arrival there was a, one I think a, inability to understand and see the landscape as being uh, as, as, as well kept and as 
being harnessed by Indigenous peoples in a very, very sophisticated and sustainable way. When they got here, they saw it as what they had constructed over mm. in London, over mm. in England and in the other colonies as waste, that this land was not being used in the right way. Therefore, it we have a right to use it and, and to make it our own. We better it. To we better, better it, it exactly, even. exactly, and um, that's and that comes down to a very colonial idea of even how um, time works. You know, and this is, you know, time. Well, time a- is a colonial thing exactly. because time does not exist. The white ideas of time don't exist within our culture, and they have only existed in this country for two hundred and thirty years. It's the same as, you know, English language, which is why I don't give a fuck about so- making it sound so shit because mm. it is shit. And you know, people didn't care about. Radri language or Gadigal language when they came here forcing our people to speak English. So, you know, they are two very opposite um, cultures and worldviews. Um, we, Aboriginal people, so for example, Aboriginal people uh, are very in tune with seasons mm. um, and star systems and the natural world, whereas, you know, capitalism and white culture, that's just another resource that's to be to be bettering your life um, so that you know you can benefit and hoard that, mm. whereas that is a desecration of any type of law in our culture because you don't you don't take too mm. much mm. you don't take more than what you need you don't do all that sort of stuff you leave places the way that you found it so that somebody else can enjoy it mm. all of those kind of things that you know are becoming very socially kind of woke at the moment um, you know as more people are starting to move away from these capitalist ideas. And now they're starting to actually value indigenous systems of mm. knowing and operating and being and all that sort of stuff. I think I heard a, I think I heard a, a Mohawk man, um, a professor um, who's a Mohawk man from, he's a First Nations pe- person from Canada, say in a lecture, his name is Tiage Alfred, he said there, unfortunately there's a silver lining to climate change. And that is something that is... I've held on to um, in this sort of bittersweet notion that there is now a structural shift in the thinking of a lot of people, not everybody, but in a lot of people across the world that maybe capitalism and maybe the way that we structure our societies currently isn't the best. And we're being shown that with hard evidence. Um, well, I've seen something and it's interesting as well, you know, um, and I think it was just like a meme or something because that's where I get most of my news these days because, you know, a lot of these a lot of these um, colonialist institutions just keep reinforcing colonialist shit and it, you know, um, doesn't leave us in a good spot. But um, I read this thing and it was like, you know, when the human body has an infection, you have a temperature and that's your body telling you that something's wrong with your body. Um, so why not is it recognised that the world warming up is a problem? Um, the world is actually sick um, and it's got a temperature and it's white people that have um, that have done that but and that I have made that so hot exactly, over time. Exactly. Um, you and know, I with the denial of other people's humanness and the theft of resources um, all for a very small population, very small percent of the population to have all of these privileges. And that's what it really comes down to, right? Mm. Um, I think I want to just get back to the imbalance of worldviews of colonisers. Um, language. Our language is the direct opposite of what English language is. And again, you know, that's 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 kind of the stuff that I really um, am interested in being a poet. Mm. being a spoken word poet as well and, you know, having ownership over my shit and autonomy over my shit. Um, imbalance of worldviews. I've found an interesting... 
um, some int- interesting images that I'm always kind of fascinated about. Uh, f- it always fascinates me to look at these. This book that I'm holding is by Val Attenborough. Uh, it's called Sydney's Aboriginal Past, Investigating the Archaeological and Historical Records. This is a great resource to have. Um, I remember as a young person um, learning immensely, um, you know, from the work that my mum did with the land council back then and with heritage um, sites and stuff like that, um, cultural heritage stuff. Um, I remember actually meeting this this woman and going to these sites and stuff like that. There's a lot of um, diagrams. There's a lot of, um, what would you call them? They're like early colonial... Depictions. Depictions of what they were seeing, that they were sending home to England to try to describe to these English people how foreign um everything that they've seen and i guess how foreign they felt um because that's what's really kind of re- reflected here um retrospectively looking at it now in 18 to uh, 2018 sorry um you know we have such things as like um this image on the back and it's got a image of two warriors spearing these these creatures that look like dogs standing up and when you have a look at it a bit more it's obvious that they're not dogs standing up, but they're trying to actually depict kangaroos, but they would have had no prior knowledge or ideas or ways to represent that. They would have had no prior knowledge um, and to actually identify what a kangaroo was. Um, and I guess, you know, their their understanding of a lot of stuff was from very... F- from observations, which were very far removed. And conditioned, completely conditioned by their own understanding of the places that they had come from. And I think that that's not an excuse for what has ever happened, but it explains on arrival the conditions through which they could make assumptions about this country. And it really demonstrates quite um, quite perfectly... Um, the ways in which your worldview and the, and the way that you structure, the way that you move through the world as a person um, shapes the way that you observe things. It, 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 the, the reason that they drew these kangaroos as dogs is because they had no idea of how to draw it in any other way. Um, yeah, and they couldn't probably get close enough as well to actually notice the differences. Um, you know, the words for kangaroo even are supposed to be um, a, like I've I've been told that the story for can, uh, the word for kangaroo was um, you know a white man seen that 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 creature hopping past and asked an Aboriginal person what that was, um, what that creature was, and that black fella said what that thing there. So kangaroo doesn't actually mean what the animal is; it's just a reaction to the question, which is you know a lot of things have been caught in uh, caught in translation. There's been a lot of um stuff that's been misinterpreted a lot because of this stuff. Um, And, you know, we talked about these value systems again in a previous episode. We talked about how different our value systems are, which come back to the way that, you know, Aboriginal knowledges and land has been valued and the way that Aboriginal people have been removed from that land in order for colonialism to take place. Um, I just wanted to actually... I was trying to find a quote here, but... Um, I always talk about just within uh, poetry and being Aboriginal person and, um, you know, um, there's something about labels. It's a very colonial thing to name something as well. Once you name something, you kind of have ownership over that. 
And I guess that's why it's so important for our young people to be learning language and to be creating their own terms of reference. Because once we create our own terms of reference, we have that power over that. And that is a counteract, that is a counteraction of, you know, that colonial ownership of something that they don't don't understand. Yeah, that's resurgence, yeah. It's a it's an important it's an important factor. Language shapes your worldview and it's the way that you can assert yourself over the hegemony that is the Western um, precepts of this country, which are not born of this place. It's not the language that um, originated from existing in this landscape. It is one that has come here and claimed and, and, and washed over the top of it um, an idea of itself as a nation. Um, mm. it is, it is in, and that is why we're coming back to this sort of this legal fiction, this mm. idea of Terranalius that allowed every that allowed a settler and allowed um, Western visitors and settlers to make decisions and make assumptions about what they saw, so that they could have their own way, do what they wanted, mm. build their own houses, build their own, sow the crops. And without any, uh, without any idea that there was repercussions um, about what they were doing, vast, intense ecological repercussions. I, we were just talking yesterday and I listened to this amazing talk given by Bruce Pascal recently mm. about how he had been using the, um, the documentation of settler explorers as a in his book Dark Emu, as evidence to um, draw conclusions about the lost ecosystems and the lost agricultural um, mm. schemes that were being exploited across the nation by indigenous peoples, and it's really beautifully an- beautiful, beautiful anecdote that he kind of brings it all back down to, where he this one um, explorer, and I'll get you the name after the break, had painted this image of a horizon line and landscape with a set of women digging into the soil with long sticks, bent over, digging into the soil. And he knows through the way that the plants were painted that they were, um, they were yam lilies and they, were, they had the flowers, they were yam daisies and they were f- growing flowers and he could see that the women were digging up these flowers and that was the, the, the size, the sheer scale of um, the drawing itself showed that there was probably a... A, a crop or a field of these yams for eight hectares, yeah. and so this is a vast agricultural system in which these women were were digging into the soil and harvesting yams and resettling the soil for further for further um, yam growth. A year later, all of those yam crops were gone because yeah. of because of the introduction of sheep, and the the sheep have as a foreign body. Their, their hooves, they, they mm. compact the soil and their, teeths can, their teeth can cut through the, um, the roots to the very bottom and they stop the plant from ever growing again. Well, the, the whole reason why Parramatta, um, you know, the second colony um, was established was because they couldn't grow food close to the sea because of the salt content. So it actually took them about 20 years to realise that and they almost starved to death, which is why Pemawoy was such an important figure because he was actually feeding them. And then they started killing these people. Um, you know, and this is what it comes down to. Like, we we know the technologies and we know the strength and we know the value that our people have and this land has and our connection to it and the maintenance and, um, you know, the, the, the cycles of life that we both go through that synchronises with the land as well. Um, you know, we, we know that stuff. Um, talking about Terra Nullis as a myth, 
um, Bruce is one of the major myth busters at the moment. Like he's a myth slayer. He takes those myths and literally just chops them in half. And this is the sort of information that everybody should be finding. And, um, you know, this is, this is the stuff that, that everybody should be knowing about. Um, because anything less is just reinforcing colonial lies and myths and alibis. Alibis, how they uphold their lies. Uh, I feel like I'm going to go into a rhyme right now and a bit of a poem. Um, Do it. <laughs> nah, save that for another day. Save that for another one. Another day, because um, we'll just keep going and going. But this is the thing, right, is that all this stuff is all purposely created to keep people not questioning or challenging the lie. Exactly. And, 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 what, and the way that it involves itself, that this is what we're trying to draw back to in terms of how the planning practices in, the, in and of themselves are inherently connected to this dispossession. That if you are engaging in living in this country, literally in, in the process of purchasing house, renting a building, you become complicit within this, this structure of settler colonialism. And, and, and there's something inherently... There's something that we, I think that we lose... And we think that we have kind of passed these um, these these deep, entrenched, racist histories in this country, but the structures are born of those mentalities, born of those strategies, born of those ideas of eradication, of division, of dispossession, um, and of erasure. Of we, sp- we spoke culture. in length about how police, as an institution, has mm. not changed their policies. Since they, since white people have been here, since mm. 1788, um, you know, so even the law that exists in this land is a lie. Mm. The courts are a lie. Mm. The way that they collect um, and use our resources without actually reparating mm. um, our people for that dispossession, it's all based on a lie. And mm. it's the exact same thing that's happening in Waterloo after, you know, Aboriginal people have have congregated in Redfern mm. and com- and built that community up to what it is. So, you know, it's literally further dispossessing descendants of dispossessed people after they found some healing and found a space to call home. Mm. Congratulations. Well done. New South Wales Government Communities Plus. White people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a disgrace and there's... We're... I mean, we're going to bring it back again. It's just, if it's, it's, it's one thing to land, you know, to land off a boat and declare everything from one point of the horizon and beyond as British soil, as Cook did so when he lazy. stood on Possession Island in August 1770. Um, but it's a, very, it's a very different thing to make that real. To make that legal fiction into a reality necessitated the extermination, mm. the expulsion, the dispossession mm. of Indigenous peoples mm. and the erosion of their sovereignty in their sovereign lands and the connections they had between nations. Well, this country's mentality is so caught up in that lie and so deluded mm. that we actually have to put in work to unpack the lie and to expose truth and to actually be talking about, you know, this truth has been there the whole time. We mm. are the truth. The fact mm. that we have survived all of this, we are living, walking, breathing, talking truth. Exactly. And I reckon maybe we should go to a song break on that. Maybe. How do you feel? How that you sounds feeling? Good. Let's, How you um, feeling, Joel? Let's <laughs>
Um, it's been real. You're listening to um, Survival Garden Radio Skid Row 88.9 FM. Um, we're going to cut to a song and we'll be back. Thanks for listening. back you're listening to radio skid row 88.9 fm this is survival guide with joel and lorna taking you straight through to 2 p.m every friday yes um so we're back. back we've been talking about myths uh we've been talking about the myth slayers uncle robbie thorpe bruce pascoe um and the work that they've been doing we had some quotes and i think you had did you have another quote I've got a little line from him. I was going to play that out. Um, we'll do that right now. If, if you want. I'm oh, sorry. I just might have jumped. Um, but, yeah, we're just all about the myths today and slaying those myths of Terra Nullius and mm. um, planning as a colonial mechanism with the news breaking today. Aboriginal people called hunter-gatherer. What's all this business of irrigating crops, harvesting crops, having granaries of over a ton in several parcels? trading grain, cultivating yam pastures, having 3,000 kilometres of eel races around the town of Kuroit in Victoria. What is going on? This isn't hunter-gathering. So I'm asking you what you think. If we can't use words like horticulturalist, because I've had the ruler over my knuckles for suggesting such a thing, we can't say tilling. I was admonished for that. We can't say, apparently, farming. We can't say cultivation. What is going on? I know it's not hunter-gathering. Aboriginal people in that era knew it wasn't hunter-gathering. Maybe the term hunter-gathering is just very convenient for people who wanted to take the land. Because if you're hunter-gathering, your possession of the soil is itinerant. Big words from Uncle Bruce Pascoe there. Smashing myths. All about um, the terms, the language, um, you know, and I I guess... um, you know, he's had to train himself even. He's talking a little bit about that um, with tr- knowing evidence, seeing evidence, but it's the terminology, um, you know, that is valued by white systems is not accepted because it's coming from a black mouth. Um, you know, and I think that that's very much, no matter the work that you put in, but I think that's why it's so important to to look at someone like Uncle Bruce at the moment um, and such a deadly uncle and, you know, has been inspiring many, many different kind of responses to this work and to this myth-slaying and the mm. act of myth-slaying, um, you know. W- this is pretty much what our whole show has been about, is about myth-slaying the whole, the whole lies that, you know, we don't have 
a right to that part of land that we are talking about and that we have such emotional ties not just in this life but you know in in the whole in the whole survival of, of mm. our of mm. the of the race of our people mm. um in, in front in in um you know on the doorsteps of of invasion mm. and genocide um and that dispossession um talking about dispossession i wanted to take it back to what you were talking about with the frontier wars so when they landed in 1788 it was pretty much you know um a lot of kind of reprisals, a lot of miscommunication kind of things happening, um, very heated, um, you know, I guess the ways that they came here, they had war on their minds. They knew what they were doing. Um, you know, they didn't actually go and try and engage with communities and learn from them. They went and kidnapped people in, in the um, uh, people like Benelong and um, Nanbury. Mm. They, they kidnapped those people. Um, you know, a lot of the accounts that we have of Sydney come from people that are most probably suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Mm, we read this. I read this last week in our last episode um, from the History of Land Settlement that you know, I think is quoted in the first page that more attention was paid to guns than That's to right. wheat, to That's the right. seed, to the feeding of the to the penal colonies. Um, there was more, yeah. There was there was more strategy placed on the ways in which they would defend themselves and to mm-hmm. uh, and to engage in warfare than there was in sustaining um, the colony as any sort of society. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had that um, famous um, image that we also mentioned in a previous episode, where it's got the image of um, uh, uh, Aboriginal person spearing a sheep, and then a picture of that Aboriginal person being hung. Um, you know, which was pretty much um, putting out there to everybody. And I guess, you know, I really want to acknowledge um, my auntie Mary Co. Daly and her book, um, Rindranai and the Wiradjuri Kuri, because this is the sort of stuff that, um, you know, she did uh, a long time ago, more, like 30 years ago now, and I was a young girl really um, being around Miss Slayers for a very long time. Um, you know, and she talked about with the Wiradjuri people how... Um, you know, Aboriginal people seen it as whatever was whatever was planted and was coming from our land, we had a right to it because it's our land. Um, and, you know, after sustaining ourselves for so many thousands of years and then somebody else coming here and saying, no, what you did is not right and we're going to do it this way um, and we're going to take all your resources and push you to the side. And when you see them people eating and um, living safely and happily, of course you're going to, you know, which is what a lot of the reprisals were about, uh, especially with Windradine, was um, landowners shooting at Aboriginal people for taking potatoes that were growing on their land after all of the natural resources and food sources and all of that had been cleared. Um, you know, so that's a direct act of war. Um, you know, and I think that it always has to be brought back to that, is that everything has been a direct act of war. Um, and then we've got policies of protection and things like that, um, which I find very interesting as well. Um, the kind of whole, the whole contradictory nature of the relationship where it's like, well, you can't take this, so now we're going to shoot you. Okay, so now it's warfare. Oh, so these guys are, need protection because they don't know how to operate on our land. It's just, it's a set, it's one lie after the other, mm. and it's disgusting. Um, and it's set a precedent of lies built on lies, built on lies, built on lies. Um, talking about lies built on lies, built on lies, built on lies. Um, I've got some, I've got a little bit of information that is said to have been published by South Sydney Council. Um, uh, South Sydney Council was actually one of the oldest councils, um, which was amalgamated um, 
into City of Sydney Council, um, which had a part to play in the whole Redfern Waterloo Authority. Um, and you fellas, you know, wonder why we get so caught up in this because these lies are drowning us. Um, lol, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to read. So a lot of information that I have about white land ownership of the area that I grew up in comes from South Sydney Council and the way that they talked up their great... Um, boroughs and communities and things um, that were founded on 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 morality and um, whiteness. Okay, so I'm just going to go. I've got to breathe through this. The area known as Waterloo had the Aboriginal name of Ilpa, meaning plenty of raspberries, and it was peopled by the Camilleroy tribe and various sub-tribes whose language was Turuwul. The area consisted of swamps and low sandy hills, and the vegetation included coarse grasses, tea trees and reeds. Mount, Mount Lachlan, now Mount Carmel, was the watershed of the Lachlan Swamp, Centennial Park, the source of Sydney's early water supply. Waterloo was undoubtedly named as a result of the British victory at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, but there is some controversy as to how the name actually came to be applied to that suburb. Part of the area that is now known Waterloo has was included in a land grant of 1,400 acres made to William Hutchinson by Governor Brisbane in 1823. That same governor also declared martial law against my people, side note. Um, this land was purchased by Daniel Cooper, his brother Robert and Solomon Levy for 2000 700 pounds to be paid in Spanish dollars because they didn't have any English money because they weren't quite a you know that's the whole thing with this story right um with the the colony um they didn't they didn't have any currency they actually traded in rum right um I'm just gonna interesting side note that the first the first um minted and printed um Australian coin was actually carved, minted and gilded by a uh, convicted forger. Mm. The it's always very interesting when we talk about the the ways in which the 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 kind of what's the they called it the um the the violent assemblage or something like that. The the people that they were sending in the penal colony over to Australia who became in and of themselves people establishing markers of trade be it the the first minted coins, all these renditions of landscapes, were all people who had no place in there in the society that they'd come from. They had been convicted of many crimes, <laughs> ostracized, and ostracized, and they came to this country. And they are the people whose documentation we, or not we, but these are the people whose documentation is used as um, the marking and the the historical evidence of what has been taken as cold hard truth ever mm. since. And the people who have upheld that levels of morality in the colony were thieves mm. and um, you know prisoners and convicts. Um, just a little side note. Just, I just a little, little side in. note. We're full of side notes up in here. Um, Cooper and Levy were all well known Sydney merchants, and their establishment on the corner of George and Market Street, Sydney, was known as Waterloo House. Even if this building was the origin of the name of the suburb. It, in turn, was named after the Battle of Waterloo, and so Waterloo was named at least 35 years before its proclamation as the Borough of Waterloo in 1860. The rest of the Waterloo area was included in a grant of 185 acres made to John Thomas Campbell on the 30th of June, 1825, and this was purchased by Daniel Cooper and William Hutchinson on the 29th of October, 1829. From this time until his death on the 3rd of November, 1853, Daniel Co Cooper sold some of the Campbell grant, but out of the whole area now compromising Waterloo, only a few acres were disposed of. Almost the whole of the mun municipality was to remain within the Cooper estate until the 20th century 
parliamentary and members of this family included Sir Daniel Cooper, who was the first Speaker of the Legislative Assembly in 1856. The earliest land use in Waterloo included market gardens and dairies and there was even a successful attempt to wheat growing. As the suburb progressed, the local manufacturing included rope works and wool washing and industries which relied upon water power for their operation. Water mills played a vital role in the development of Waterloo and one of the earliest examples was an experimental mill set up in 1813 by John Hutchinson and Simeon. Sorry, I'm terrible with white names and English as I've been talking about. Um, Simeon Lord to manufacture cloth, pottery and glass. Although this experiment failed, other mills were established and five years later a mill was set up by Fisher and Duncan to manufacture paper. This mill produced the paper on which the Sydney Gazette was printed on the 29th of July 1820, was set up by the Fisher uh, sorry, uh, 1820, a flour mill owned by William Hutchinson, Daniel Cooper, George Williams and William Leverton was named the Waterloo Mills by Governor Macquarie and after the Waterloo Mills took over the Lachlan Hills uh, Mills in 1820, it was possible to grind 1,600 bushels of wheat each week. Bushels? Bushels, is it? Um, this goes on, but it's all very important information. Um, the Municipalities Act of 1858 led to the formation of the Borough of Redfern the following year, and Waterloo was the ward of this borough. About six months later, a petition was presented to Governor Denison by residents wishing to secede from Redfern and Waterloo were being proclaimed a borough on the 16th of May, 1860. Part of the area just south of then boundary line was incorporated into the borough in 1861 and on the 31st of August 1868 this borough was divided into two boroughs of Waterloo and Alexandria. Um, these, per these, these, these people, this one family I just want to mention um, is, uh, have been said um, the Cooper Estate included the real estate we now know today as Rose Bay, Bellevue Hill, Hill Willara, Point Piper, Double Bay, Waterloo, Alexandria, Roseberry, Zetland, Beaconsville, Kensington, Kingsford, Erskineville, Pagewood, Eastlake, Stacyville, Redfern, Surrey Hills, part of the North Sydney, Cremoyne, Neutral Bay, Curraba Point, Camaray. So these one family literally owned half of Sydney. Um, I don't I don't know if I mentioned it as well, but the William Hutchinson, William Hutchinson was also in charge of the convict work. So he was the convict elevated to um, um, whip cracker for the other convicts, um, you know, and, it, and it, we just keep doing circles in on itself. And this is what good liars do, I guess. Um, unpacking this. Um, and I ain't going to lose my head in all this because, you know, I know, f like, our whole work, right, is proving our humanness and our right to land. Um, we can, I can go on and on and on and on about, about these white landowners specifically. Um, it says that there were people by the Camilleroy tribe. Hey, where's our native title? Um, Gammonist joke there, sorry, but, um... You know, this is the thing about white, white descriptions of our land and how we as Aboriginal people then have to go through and unpack that, put it all back together and apply our knowledges, our decolonised knowledges as well as our Aboriginal um, cultural knowledges to this information. Um, a lot of the work that I do has been really tracing the waterways um, because all those waterways link up to the Greater Sydney area 
and Botany Bay. So I had these theories um, that, you know, Sydney was so, so, it was a swamp. Literally, Sydney was a swamp. So it makes sense that it took white people a good, what, 20, 30 years to get to Parramatta. It was because they actually probably would have needed a canoe or they probably would have needed to go and kidnap someone else to show them all those places. And again, you know, I just want to just just really paint that picture of what Redfern was at the time of colonisation. It would have been one of the higher points where you could come and see the water. You could actually watch these white people land and set up their camp from places of uh, like Redfern and Waterloo. If you look at the ridgelines, they're the next high point. It was the next uh, next um, accessible drinking water after they polluted the tank stream. Um, you know, all of this history, it all comes down to water and the way that this land has been treated, which is representative of how our bodies have been treated again and again and again and again and yeah, again, right? It's extracted. There's um, this extractive logic of the colony to use and harness and destroy the um, natural resources within um, the, any area that it, it establishes um, settlement. Mm-hmm. And it's this, uh, this kind of jumping from Sydney, you know, the, the, this spread of this colonial <sighs> line that moves across. You just said about how mm-hmm. it took time to move to Paranet, Parramatta. But, and it's all you know, very calculated. There's no coincidence about them just going anywhere and going, oh, let's set up camp here. And the colonial frontier, you know, it pushed across the continent over half a century in a staggered but incredibly violent kind of metaphorical mm. line that would eventually dispossess everyone, mm-hmm. all Indigenous peoples of their land. Um, it was, you know, settlers were intensely engaged in what was one of the largest transfers of land in mm. the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think we can talk about the kind of colonial logic of the ways in which the Crown had appointed itself mm. to demarcate and survey land, but also what's what's interesting is the we can't really talk about the expansion of the colony if we don't talk about squatters. That's right. And the logic of the squatter mentality, and, and I think this Be- is what we Before we're... we move on, though, I just would like to really pose a question. All of those industries that have been created and built on and destroying those resor- resources and polluting that water, those ancient water systems, how much money they made off that? How much money... Uh, did, them, did them mob ever see that? Did them ever, ever see any of that value? And again, this is the whole crux of our argument again and again and again. Sorry, Joel, you were saying something. <laughs> i just keep going, just keep going. Um, it's, it's just... It's just so it's just so full on, you know? And everywhere where they had landed, there was Aboriginal people there waiting to contest it. And this is, you know, the whole thing about coming here, um, the way that history presents itself is that it was settled peacefully when, you know, really what we know from our oral histories and even their own accounts is that they came here with war on their minds and in their hearts. They came here... Um, looking for a, for a new place to send the, the rejects that they didn't want in their society, but also to make a bit of money off them as well. Exactly. And I think it links back to how we were talking about the kind of the Western logic of how property comes into, comes mm-hmm. into being, you know, through the investment of labour. So there was the, there was the instrumentalisation and, and, the, and the surveying and knowing and naming of land, which is, the, you know, one colonial mechanism to turn what was Indigenous land back into your property or into your property. But then there was also the harnessing of the convicts' um, mentalities of free men u- being utilised as squatters who would mm. push outside of the mm-hmm. of the ordained surveyed boundary and would set up 
set up a set up a farm or set up a, a house if they have the resources to and they built this logic which you know it's it's not i'm not i don't feel like it's a really much of a of a of a stretch to really show that this kind of is inherently built into our planning logic in mm-hmm. australia the 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 current logics of the ideas of subdivision and the ways in which you can stake out claim to land it's uh it's all it's all interwoven and and to think that if you operate within the current property market you have to understand that you are complicit in the ongoing occupation and you are using mm. the same logic and the same mm. rules mm-hmm. that were used to expel and mm. dispossess indigenous peoples and mm. i'm going to keep making that point because it's really important I think what is also really interesting when you talk about this idea of the this understanding of how you apply labor to land to create property there then becomes a differential where there's a there's a there's the land that you that you wish to apply labor to and that is say when you get to Parramatta or something and you can actually harvest and actually create agricultural production and then there is land that you deem as waste mm. and the idea of waste and the idea of uh what is essentially passive and understood like neglect is still something that plays out in our current planning models. Mm. You see industrial estates that are no longer in use being mm. left until they become useful. And that's mm. only ever an economic, you know, prerogative and it becomes demarcated and then and then and then we forget about these these zones and then they become rediscovered or revitalized or reestablished. And I think that that is also inherently connected to this episode mm. about what we're talking about in terms of how planning mm. one not only is a colonial mechanism but how right here and now today within Waterloo but and also this year across Greater Sydney there have been new plans to mm. rename and subvert and co-opt indigenous knowledges into creating what is the city of three metropolises thank you very much Lucy Turnbull um i think oh, i just wanted to go back and just really um just really get across um, and just reiterate, everybody's complicit in buying and selling stolen goods. Stolen goods um, that our people have been murdered for and you're just still trying to make out that nothing happened and we wasn't even here to begin with. Um, and I guess that's, you know, that's really the crux of all these legal arguments. Um, you know, the 10 Embassy has existed for 40 years. It's literally challenging the illegal sovereignty that this country says that they have over over us um you know there's there's people the tenebrisi is actually the longest running protest site in the world um you know uh, this is nothing new mm. aboriginal people have been challenging this since they got here mm. um you know we've been detailing this we've been detailing all of this stuff um i i thought that you had a uh, had a quote about some of the policies or the laws around around white male ownership and how the sub how the land was subdivided am i wrong am i right i think we was talking yesterday you put me on the spot now i gotta I know, find I'm sorry let's uh, say that on I'm, air Lorna. i'm sorry i thought we had it all set up <laughs> <laughs> basically what we were talking about is that aboriginal people weren't a part of these subdivisions Precisely. Women, women weren't a part of these subdivisions. These subdivisions were given to white men. Well, exactly. I or mean, Aboriginal it comes, people. That it comes back to what we were saying around the idea of the the application of labour to land as as how you turn it into property, and then therefore the land that you can't apply labour to or you don't choose to is therefore nature or waste, um, and that 
when you that codes the way that you view the landscape and the way that indigenous people use the landscape just like bruce pascal said he himself in contemporary in contemporary times in 2018 is being um, admonished and torn down by white academics saying that no indigenous people were not horticulturists were not agriculturists they were hunter-gatherers because that mm, we were savages that logic underpins that it was it, that under underpins the necessity that lie that white people need to live by to feel like they have stake to this country. Oh, you know and what? I think the land land then, if it is waste or pure, um, is left. You know, the idea of waste is intrinsically related to the future, but it is only then when mm. white men, who were the, st- mm. the subject of all mm. of the laws currently mm. in Australia, you know, that is the proper subject of these laws. Mm. Um, enclose their own purposes and can mm. do the cultivation as they want. Um, I, I think it's that's that's inherently what we still exist in, is mm. that system. Oh, yeah, they want our land and our culture, but they don't want us. Um, you know, and it keeps... Uh, this is what colonial um, model looks like and this is what it does. Um, we... Talking about the squatocracy and just talking about those morality um, that, you know, existed in the colony at that time... Um, you know, there's stories about Aboriginal people seeing public floggings um, and being scared to death of coming anywhere near the colony. Um, you know, these are tactics of fear. You know, they literally left bodies, um, you know, dead in the streets, um, either from the smallpox epidemic or from the massacres and things like that, you know. Um, there has been campaigns of fear. Um, again, that genocide, um, you know, it's ongoing. We, we, we are exposed to it every single day. Every year on the 26th of Janu- January when, you know, everyone wants to argue whether we should be celebrating, um, you know, the colonial birth of this nation or should we be acknowledging and mourning the theft of it, um, you know. And it, 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 happens, it happens every year because we still have not reconciled this shit. Um, you know, when I talk about reconciliation, I'm not talking about the viewpoints that exist in this country where it's like get over it um, and don't repatriate or, you know, compensate or pay rent or ongoing rent or back pay rent. Um, a, we, we're setting up this, 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 these next couple of episodes. We're going to be talking about money in length as well because, you know, white people don't really care unless it comes down to money and their value systems. Um, back and, and it's this is also... I mean, like how we just made that connection between the kind of the the differential between uh, property and wasteland and wasteland as being something that is left until it is intrinsically worth something more. That is, you mm. know, explicitly the ethics that we see happening within our current mm-hmm. models of um, redistributing of land and, and, the, and the revaluing of land um, as well as the ways that people argue the redevelopment of public housing as mm. we've seen in Redfern and Waterloo. Mm-hmm. And these rights are awarded to the hegemonic order, those rights of the white man, the, the subject proper within this conversation. So after this break, we're going to play some music and we're going to come back and we're going to have some interviews, we're going to have some conversations with mm-hmm. some non-white squatters, mm. um, contemporary, um, who can share with us some of their own experiences and some of the um, whether or not their rights were enshrined as people within this country in those processes. Um, you've been listening to Radio Skid Row, 88.9 FM, with Joel. And Lorna. <laughs> survival Guide. Survival Guide. <laughs> Sick, 
Fuck that. 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 We know the shit, bitch. Fuck that. Welcome back. You're listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna and our special guest. Am I allowed to say my name? Well, how do you how do you how do you how feel? do you want to do it? Do you want to do it anonymous? We've or? got a, we've got an anonymous um, informant here. We've got a, a one of our um, esteemed and very 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 close friends um, in the studio talking to us about their own experiences. We were just talking before the break about the. Um, history of the colonial expansion into the rest of the continent and how the uh, the mechanism of squatting was used and instrumentalized and um, kind how of how it only is benefiting white men as well in exactly. the history of this country. Um, okay, so I'm 29 and I'm from Lewisham. That's my my spiel, um, and I identify as a black woman. My ethnic heritage is Lebanese and Namibian. Shout out my people wherever they are. Okay. Um, so we've been talking about all of those things, all of those power structures, um, and we just thought it'd be really interesting um, just to really kind of have a bit of a comparative study. Um, mm-hmm. ha- what happens when a, a black woman... Um, Tries to squat? Yeah. Um, okay, so just a bit of background. At the time I was a uni student at Sydney Uni, living with my mum in Marrickville. And um, obviously rent wasn't something that I could afford at the time. So me, another friend who also grew up in Glebe, who is Chinese, um, her background, found a terrace house in Glebe that was three bedrooms and empty completely. So we contacted some other people who were known to squat, like in Sydney, and went there for a kind of recce just to suss it out if it was possible. And he said, yep, it's a go. So we got in and we changed the locks. So we had key access, mm. um, which is the first thing you do. You change the locks, mm. you claim the That's space. That's what I've been told as well, yeah. Yep, you claim the space. Um, and then we were in there because it was so, um, like, kind of derelict and dirty. We spent a week cleaning. So we would go there in between classes and clean and do maintenance on the house because it had to be livable. Uh, we would also sit there and eat lunch. And one day it was raining, we were cleaning and we were playing Connect Four, we were taking a break, and there was a knock-knock-knock at the back window and we look out and it's the police. So someone had in the area had heard us in the house and mm. cleaning and had called the police and they hadn't knocked at the front door. What they did was they jumped the fence in mm. the rain and came to the back window. Wow. Uh, And they took us outside and they told us why we were there and we just showed them our keys and said we had keys and then they asked for our ID and they wouldn't give our IDs back until we locked the door and left. Um, We were all 18 at the time, so pretty stupid. Uh, And then we were charged with trespassing. Mm. So we had to go to court and... Um, yeah, 
I was so surprised because what we were doing was so innocent. Like cleaning. It sounds lovely. Cleaning sounds like and playing Connect week. Four and eating Vietnamese rolls. With your friends, yeah. With our friends. Um, but as my mum said when I told her that we were being charged and she had to pay for a lawyer, she said, what do you expect? You went for their property. Like you mm. went for the thing that they care about. Crimes against property mm. are worse than crimes against people in this society. So, yeah, that was it. I got charged. We had to plead guilty um, and I got a section 10 so it's not on my record or anything okay. like that. But that's the only time I've been actually charged with something I did. And I I've probably, I shouldn't say this on air, I've done worse things and not been... You're anonymous, <laughs> so you can say... <laughs> not being charged. But that was the one thing I've been charged for and probably one of my most prolonged interactions with the justice system in this How country. How long did the court, go, court case go for? <sighs> Oh, it was a day because we pled guilty, but it was a huge thing about I had to get a lawyer. So I had to, I think my mum paid about $1,100 for wow. a lawyer to come and stand next to me for 10 minutes. Mm. Um, who, who were the prosecutors acting on behalf of? That's what I would like to know. Yeah, well, see, we never got to find out who owned the house, mm. why it was empty, why it wasn't being leased, why it was allowed to be just like derelict because it was mm. also like... It wasn't safe inside the house in some respects. Um, the balcony was all worn down. So we never got to find out who the owner was. That's it. But that they were acting, yeah, on behalf of the owner and that a neighbour had also called. Um, mm. was really interesting. I assume another property owner in the area. Um, thinking, why is this black girl and this Asian girl going into a terrace in Glebe? Well, it's... it's um. It's totally a, a racist kind of um, point of view and it's that whole, you know, not in my neighbourhood thing, like as soon as, you know, um, we see younger um, coloured people moving in. I also think it was a bit of arrogance on our part in the sense that I guess we thought the rules that applied to everyone apply, could apply to us too, like in what the respect you were talking about, they mm. applied to white men. So I think we were a bit arrogant in the sense we thought there's an empty house no one's using it we can just take it for use um without at all questioning even the politics of doing that but yeah we thought we were doing something really cool and it just ended up being a massive headache and I'm not sure I would ever do it again or encourage people to do it Mm. because it there has to be other ways of acquiring space in the city that doesn't kind of put us in the line of like the police and stuff like that yeah I, that's why I'm probably my main reason why I wouldn't do it again is because of the way we were policed for doing it mm. especially like you kind of think oh they just found us playing connect for they couldn't just let us go but they really didn't do that mm. no I think it's um all very interesting um stuff because I've uh grown up in Waterloo Redfern I hear a lot of stories about people squatting in um Surrey Hills um, you know, it's actually w- one of the main places where I kind of learnt about squatting. Ult- I think Ultimo is another yeah, yeah, one all that around has there. a few long-term squats. Um, and a lot of homeless people that I know, that's pretty much how they survive. Um, you know, and I, again, it's just really interesting that you said, you know, you would think by how you look at everything that that would be okay. 
and this is kind of what we're talking about is the double standards um you know and the fact that everything is kind of created to benefit white men in this country um you know and there's that skewed view and the, the, the laws are open to interpretation and i really find that interesting because that's what that's what people do when they lie as well they kind of like you know um but it changes the story changes but also that the property owner even if they're not using the space for what it should be used for which is to house people mm. they're just letting it kind of that mm. that is more of a legal right than for someone to use the space for what it's used for like that this kind of and it's funny that it was kind of this faceless person we never yeah. met or encountered in any way um but that they're that invisible person their right to have a house empty and derelict was more like based in legal grounds than someone that needed housing. Yeah, and it's like we've just been talking about sort of the history of occupation in Australia from arrival and that sort of the kind of conceptualisation of the Mm -hmm. way that you make property out of land and and apply labour to it also creates like a sort of a differential where there's then the wasteland, the, the waste space, and that is intrinsically connected to time and that waste is only waste for a certain period of time until it is it is deemed as um, as being useful again because it, because of appreciation of value and other things and that 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 playing out in a very modern or a very contemporary situation where you have housing being left to rot essentially to until the property mm. value is appreciates enough for someone to use it and that you using it normally as it should be used as as we have a right as people to be housed mm. um, is actually an affront to that law and that those laws were built from that and just that yeah we're trying to build those sort of those historical ties between the way that we mm. do this stuff and that it's uh it's such a head mm. it's such a head i guess i guess you know the democracy that exists in this country isn't a democracy it's a squatocracy <laughs> but it only benefits white men mm. Mm. um well they're the ones with the streets named after them and things like that i was speaking right. earlier before that my partner's white family, like I recently found out they have streets named after them in the areas where they first owned property and stuff because because they owned so much mm. property and it's just super disturbing because, mm. yeah. Mm. you still I still see the privilege of that property ownership in his life today. Mm. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying he's like, fucking rolling in cash i wish he was but um there's a financial literacy there that i think comes from being part of that squatocracy yeah 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 being part of that squatocracy Mm. and navigating the system that you built yourself you know that's the thing it's like the the hegemonic kind of white um male model the kind of the subject proper of all of the laws they also wrote them so they're writing them for themselves to navigate this this terrain to protect themselves and, and their convicts that created a community <laughs> ostracized from the rest of their society so they could probably pro- pretty much anything goes and that's kind of what what we know australian history to be um but they're not so forthcoming in um talking about that no and it's interesting to for people to look at like the only person i know in my life that owns property is a white man and while i sleep next to him I don't sleep on mm-hmm. that fact. <laughs> so I think it's important for while you're talking about squatocracy, you know, in those first years of colonisation, mm. 
it's important to understand that people's ability to own property now is still part of that. And you know what? Um, like I, I, I'm a pretty social person. I love talking to different people. But as soon as I meet white people and they mention that they own land, I start to twitch because there is a, there is an innate blood reaction to meeting somebody who has been occupying land that is not their own for a very long time and the same family still has ownership over that, those people would have been more likely to have been partaking in massacres. Um, you know, so I literally twitch because I feel like I feel like they're all benefiting from um, genocide and the massacres of my people. So, you know, I literally my blood boils. Um and I just want to, I just felt like I needed to say that. Um, talking you can come over and yell at my white man anytime. <laughs> Mad, done, done. <laughs> Take it all out on him. Um, That's been great. No, this is, um, this is re- what's really important is we need to kind of uh, describe and articulate these sort of ongoing issues, the sort of why is it that we aren't allowed, aren't allowed access to the mm. basic basic needs the basic mm. function of these spaces the fact that there's housing being left to or housing that's being bought just to be left as capital well know? let's let's look at why aboriginal people are in housing in the first place is because they're experiencing intergenerational poverty from having no access to land mm. and now they want to take what little bit of land that we do have you know um and then th- there are they're up here giving away land now like um, there was just announced in the last week there was a plot of land across the road from Redfern Park that has literally just been given away to developers to experiment on um, housing models. Build to rent. Build to rent housing models. You know, so after after stealing it from us, keeping us away from it, keeping us poor, keeping us um, isolated and keeping dispossessed. That, keeping that piece of land empty and completely polluting it. wasted <laughs> until it became, until it was able to be appreciated enough by a developer to run an experiment on it. That's the thing. It's, a po- it's because property but market, see, it's because the property price in Sydney is so fucking high that people had to wait until now before you could get a, before you get a developer to even commit to building something that wasn't charging the highest profit these, for it. But these fellas are forgetting that these housing projects was a social experiment in the first place. Well, it was the right thing to do as an ethical conclusion. I yeah, think but it was, it was a social experiment mm, in the first place, mm. and they're still experimenting with our lives. Mm. And I'm sorry, but I'm a bit triggered. I don't actually think, but I don't actually think there's going to be very many Indigenous people living in that in that complex. To be honest, that's the like, whole point, right? But that's what I mean. They're not experimenting. That's the whole point. They've gone from they've gone from treating um, marginalised people as an actual subject to leverage, to mm. fi- figure out other ways to make money. Mm. But it's still social programming. Um, it was what I was trying to get to. Mm. It's the whole eugenics. It's the whole, you know, um, gentrification. And on that note, um, thank you so much for um, just being dragged in and talking about your experiences. Um, thank you so much. And just on that last point, we're saying I don't like to quote him because he lied on a black woman, but Riza from Wu-Tang talks about <coughs> their affiliation with comic books and superheroes came from the fact they lived in, you know, what is considered public housing, the ghetto, the projects, the projects, it's literally called the projects, Mm -hmm. and their affiliation for superheroes and comic book characters came out of the fact that their whole lives were a science experiment in Mm. the way they were housed. And so just Mm. on that point, but thank you for having us. It's good to see you guys like in the studio. I usually just listen. Thank you for coming in and speaking with us. Thanks Um, for surviving the experiment, the colonial experiment. (laughs) 
squatocracy. <laughs> the squatocracy. <laughs> Definitely. Oh um, we're going to cut to another track and we'll have another we'll have another interview after that. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Survival Guide on Radio Skid Row 88.9. And we're back on 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 the air. We are on the air. We're on air um, with Lowell and Lowell, oh, Lorna and Joel, Survival Guide, taking you through to 2 p.m. every Friday. Um, so we've been talking about planning as a colonial mechanism. We've been talking about the squatocracy. We've been talking about terra nullius and the legal lies that our court systems and all these planning institutions are all bounded and built yes. upon. We've got another guest um, on the line today. We've got Keg um, coming to us from, where are you, Keg? From uh, Waterloo. Oh, in Waterloo. We were just talking about Waterloo. Um, <laughs> yeah. show's about Waterloo. Whole show's about Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Survival Guide. How are you going? Yeah, great, great. Awesome. Yeah, so yeah, today, just like Lorna said, we've been talking about um, the sort of the squatocracy that is the kind of historical narrative mm. um, of land claiming in Australia. Mm. And you've had some really close and personal experiences um, organising around squatting in Sydney. And we'd just like to hear your own experiences on that. Sure. Um, yeah, I was involved in the Broadway squat in um, 2000. So it was like a really interesting time. Like Sydney's notorious for high rents and especially at that, that time um, when that was the year of the Olympics, obviously. So... Mm like you know rents were just like through the roof it was like they were building like little dog box apartments for um like you know and and boosting up the rents for everyone and we were squatting um these buildings along broadway um i used to use kinko's as the landmark but that doesn't exist anymore it's just Mm. down the road from um the broadway shopping center yeah and it was just it was a row of shop fronts and um we were there secretly for a while and then um when they found us there, we um, actually ended up barricading ourselves in. And, um, like, these buildings have been empty for decades, and they they actually had a history of squatting, like, I think a decade mm. before that. So I guess the early 90s, they were squatted before mm. that. Um, and there was, like, a it was, like, an amazing kind of, um, like, behind there, there was warehouses. Now it's completely erased now. They've just kept the facade. But it was just this whole area that was empty um, and some friends previous to that were squatting down the road and they and they were like when they got kicked out it like in a warehouse owned by Shell and when they got kicked out of there they were like they just basically moved their stuff around the corner up, oh yeah great up to these Broadway squats and um uh they said oh there's heaps of buildings there and so we ended up um occupying one of the big warehouses uh, me and some other women and we like formed a, a woman's squat within that but there ended up being four rows like four houses four terraces with shops above them and stuff that we squatted. And um, once we were discovered, we kind of barricaded ourselves in and we ended up, um, a couple of the people I lived with um, founded the UTF Community Law Centre, which is around the corner. Mm. And um, so using their skills and um, I trained as an architect, so I was working with Cole James up at um, Sydney Uni yep. at that time. And um, we, all, all of us sort of... Um, grouped our um our our usual um 
skills and various skills and stuff and uh, wrote a caretaker lease to be able to stay in there. And it was um, it was a way of um, being able to... It was, a, it was basically a way of um, trying to leave a legacy of um, people being able to squat and then when, instead of getting kicked out when they were discovered, to be able to stay there in a kind of negotiated mm. um, form of some sort, which means that we would pay a dollar a year for rent and um, that would uh, be our kind of lease until they were going to develop it because these buildings have been empty for a really, really long time. And so with the Olympics there and everything, we kind of utilised that as a sort of platform, like a media platform. Mm. And it was at the time when obviously the tent embassy was up the road um, at, at Victoria Park. And so we had a lot of um, support from them and we used to go to all their events as well because it was like around the corner and it was like this amazing solidarity and indie media was really big. And so we were all, everyone was putting out, you know, like being able to, I like gather lots of people instantaneously through those te- through those methods before mm. you know people were really on social media or anything like that. Um, and yeah, it was like this. Re- it felt like this really important time where um, there was this kind of push to um, be like, you know, this Sydney's getting out of control. I mean, it's still out of control <laughs> all these years later, but um, it really felt like that. It really felt like you know the Olympics were just like silencing people, pushing, evicting people out of the city, pushing them to the mm. peripheries. They were driving around in buses and, and driving people out of the city, just yeah. you know, to make yeah. to make it look you know more hospitable um, mm. to you know like tourists and stuff. And it was just this really impo- I feel like it was a really important time. Um, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. With, 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 with this no, story, it's but, great. Thank you. Yeah, but it's like you know, it just really felt really important. And um. Yeah, we were able. We ended up getting the unions on board, and they um they put a picket line around our places because um the um the, they kept trying to get in and sort of you know they would get in if they got in they would smash up the toilets, make them unlivable, so we'd have to get out. But um you know our barricades were pretty good, and um, with the picket line there, it meant that um you know it would only be scab labour who worked on the buildings, um and that was kind of like an amazing act of solidarity from them. Wow. I, I guess um yeah, I guess it's uh it's 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 really interesting when you sort of when you sort of break down the history of squatting in Australia and yeah, and the, and the squatocracy. Mm. And then you look at um you know land and um you know it's always talked about in this kind of um you know like in the in the mainstream as this like affordability. There's like so much less of a dialogue about what what land actually is um and yeah i guess i guess with squatting it's like it that that time was really interesting because it was just just um around just after that um uh the at cockatoo island was obviously squatted mm. so it was like this really amazing energy of, mm. of that period of time and there's like you know like when you draw all these kind of links together of the history of squatting in just even in Sydney, it's um, you know there the, there's like this um, yeah there's this incredible energy that still exists and I guess with the nature of squatting I always think about how um, you know there's so many people out there still squatting but we just we don't really network we can't really network with each other and um, because it's such a you know it's generally it's quite a secretive business because you don't really want people to know that you're living there because you know you 
the, with the fear of eviction and all. Um, so when we were when we were um, there and not before we were discovered, it would be like there was a phone booth outside Kinko's, um, this imaginary landmark that doesn't exist anymore, um, just down the road from this alleyway. And people, when people would say, "Oh yeah, I'm coming over," you'd be like, "Okay, we go to this phone book." phone box and call me and it was before many people had mobile phones but um you know funnily enough all the squatters sort of had to because we didn't have a landline or anything and so they would call from that phone box and we'd say okay look across down this alley and look up and you can see um, me waving out the window so come down there and i'll let you in the door and that was like the process of anyone who had to actually come in very like secretive and kind of yeah yeah and we actually, we actually had a squatting radio show um, at the time, which I think was really um, important because, yeah, but like as I was saying, it was like pre-social media kind of um, like that ability to sort of find out what people were doing mm. elsewhere. And so we had a, a, you know, a radio show every Monday and it was a really nice way to sort of, um, you know, we'd read excerpts of the squatter's handbook or, you know, we'd give squatting news from around the world and, you know, just kind of um, have this voice on air, which, you know, radio has this ability, uh, like community radio has this ability to, you know, mm. reach local people. And, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, like network people through that and, and create this kind of community. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. i got a question. Um, yeah. So what, what happened with that squat? Was, so, you, was, was you charged? Was the police intervention? Um, well, they, yeah, the... the the cops, well, I think it was interesting. There's there's one anecdote that I'll tell um, because you were talking about that kind of, um, you know, the ownership the ownership of space. Um, and um, th- there was this one time when we had barricaded ourselves in because we were basically under, like, intense surveillance this whole time. It was really full-on full on, um, time and the cops kept trying to get in. And there was this one time that um, I, we got this message from the, from the squat, like, two doors down saying the cops are trying to bust in our door, make sure um, your barricades are good. And we were like, let's go, let's go up. At the time, we were all living out, like, you know, out of a shopping bag um, and didn't really have any stuff in the thing. And we were like, let's go help them. So we walked out the door of our place and the cops just had happened to walk around there and we closed the door behind us and they were like, you know, basically trying to um, push the door open and it was just, it was holding so they couldn't get in. But they were like, shining the torch in our faces and I was like I'm with two lawyers I'm not saying a word like I mean like I know I don't like you know I know that like they'll know what to do and they weren't saying anything either and they were shining the torch in our face and be like what are, what are you doing here blah 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 and we're just like you know we've got the right to actually not um say anything there's they've got no reason to you know suspect us of doing anything mm. and um they were being really aggressive with us and they were like you know, do you speak English? Because, like, all, all of us happen to not be white. And it was, like, kind of a very interesting, um, you know, situation to be in. And it was like, oh, wow, you're really doing this. Um, and then, um, yeah, in the in the end, um, like, I just think that's, like, so, like, you know, the way that we were, the way that they were using their power and it was just, like, this, you know, this thing, this situation that always happens. But they were just, like... So, you know, those words of, like, you speak English, it's like, mm, yeah, we're just, like, you you know, we have, we're using our rights to be able to not actually tell you, not mm. actually speak to you. Um, 
But yeah, anyway, with that spot, what happened was um, the um, so basically all those buildings had been sold by um, South Sydney Council, which is um, you know uh, which it was then. We were talking about South Sydney Council earlier today. Yeah, they repeat yeah. offenders, liars. <laughs> Oh yes, completely. It was at the time when John Fowler was the um, was the mayor, and it was like, yeah, it was just a history of um, you know, dirty deals. Um, mm. But anyway, they we've been talking about it. <laughs> the developers who um, who had bought that area, um, who have now developed it, had um, been the same developers who built Broadway Shopping Centre, and mm. Broadway Shopping Centre had used a lot of scab labour to build it. And so there was like a real, and a lot of people really resented that shopping, like that shopping centre being built at the time. And so basically, the count we negotiated our caretaker lease with the council, and they were like, okay, so we we got the labour like labour councillors on side, and they were like, okay, I think we can do this with you. We can sign this. Um, it has been a really long process. We you know sort of try to build, bring the buildings up to code. Um, you know, written written this caretaker lease from scratch, um, and we got to the point where we were just about to sign it with them, and then they backflipped on us and said, "Actually, we've told developers that we're going to give these buildings to them with vacant possession, and even though they're not Sounds going to develop familiar, it for another it, year, yeah, um, we're going to, yeah, we're going to, um, we're going to um, not sign it with you." And so we were like, "Okay, we'll go talk to the." De- to the developers, we ended up signing this caretaker lease with the developers um, because they obviously wanted to look better in the eyes of the mm. community. Um, but the great thing about that, it does set this precedent, and it is it's a caretaker lease as lease, caretaker lease exists as a, a legal precedent in New South Wales now. So thank you has, for that information. Very interesting. Yeah, and it has been um, it has been used in the past. Um, so I know Cole James when um uh now that he's sadly passed but he um after broadway squats he had used it a few times with um some of his architect students actually at sydney uni um Mm. to set up uh some living situations um and you know it was interesting because he was coming from a very different angle he was coming from you know co-op housing and we were coming from a way more radical Mm. um uh perspective but we were able to collaborate on that and you know it does that that piece of legislation does exist, which is you know, which is great for that kind of um, uh, longevity and that that ability to be able to occupy buildings and um, actually have a point of negotiation, um, which is really important. Um, there's also out there um, we sort of um, put together an updated squatters handbook at the time, which was more because there was quite a few around that Mm. were you know based around UK law and things like that so Mm. we put one together that was based in New South Wales law and um yeah I think it's still on our on the squat space website so what's that website for our listeners sorry squatspace.com um so there's a bit of history about the squats there and some of the other projects that we've done um and yeah so the squatters handbook's really it's a really useful tool as a way to know your rights because i think mm-hmm. that's the most important thing mm-hmm. about squatting is to know um within within that legal framework um as much as we try to resist it um you know knowing how you can work your way knowing your rights so you can work your ways around what you're doing yeah it's super important um, and i think it's when those kind of when those rules are sort of written to be aggressive towards people seeking um, alternatives <laughs> towards the yeah. alternatives outside of the rental market and other things. I think it's inter- I think 
coming back to you speak, mentioning Cole James, I heard an interesting anecdote about him recently where um, he kind of, I think it was his phone answering machine or something, he said, make housing a verb. And I think that's kind of one of the fundamental issues I find with the sort of logic around policing um, squatters' rights and squatting. It's like these these places are being wasted in a way, you know, like that there's not, um, whether or not it be housing or warehouse or they're, they're kind of this willful neglect that we see play out constantly in urban development and other things where places are allowed to be left into dis, like complete disregard and fall into disarray until they're oh, yeah. valuable again. And when especially with our last guest, was going into, you know, people going in full and being uh, donating their time and their labour to clean and bring a space up to code to be able to live in it um, yeah. because it's a, there's, housing is a need that they have and, and that there would be the, the, the rights and the laws are defending the person wasting that space as opposed to the people trying to yeah. find something useful out of it. And my, my question then, um, you know, is how come these properties aren't taken off these people, individual owners, by the state then if it's so easy to do that on a mass scale? Oh, this, this, is, this is exactly it. It's like, well, the, the whole um, housing market as, you know, all these, all these words, okay. Um, the housing market is like, you know, works in favour of property owners. It's all mm. based around negatively geared buildings. That's why we have so much empty building stock. One of one of the banners that we dropped off the front of the um, squats when we barricade ourselves in said, you know, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like there's, you know, 500,000 empty buildings within Greater Sydney. Um, there's 10,000 um, homeless people. Um, mm. If we you know, these, these buildings that we're in right now would otherwise be left empty, don't let this happen. And it had the, you know, had the words mass Olympic evictions mm. on it. And, you know, like just, you know, pointing out these kind of statistics, what, mm. what you know, whatever obscene numbers they are, um, is just really, you know, it's, it's outrageous, like how many empty buildings there are and what a kind of, you know, what, what the housing situation is for people in Sydney. It's so hard, like people mm. are just, pushed out of this city all the time it's like it's a real struggle and it's like you know it's a testament to you know the you know the, the fact that people want to stay in the city and like yeah. struggle against all these factors um that they're still you know people are still here it's like you know it's a constant well the, 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 the case that we've been kind of entailing is that this has been this space specifically has been sanctuary this mm. has been detrimental to survival of a lot of Aboriginal people, um, yes. you know, escaping from missions and escaping from yes. um, the eugenics and a lot of the policies, escaping yes. from massacres, mm. um, you yes. know, because we trauma, knew yeah. that white people couldn't round us up and murder us in, in full view yes. of, of everybody else. Mm. You know, so these this community is, has been a sanctuary um, since, since 1788. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I but think that's... A really good point to leave it on. Um, we're so. going to come so coming much. to the end of the show, but thank you so much, Keg, for sharing with us all that information and, and your perspective. It's really amazing the work that you guys were doing, and you know the, the, that we have so much still. You know, you guys have kind of immortalized that information and the things that you've done in in terms of supplying other squatters with mm -hmm. their own ability to ne negotiate their rights in front of you know very aggressive system. Well, yeah, um, you know, in, Indigenous Australians know that situation all too well mm. and, it's, you know, it's a continuing 
um, colonisation that you know happening and mm. yeah and yeah the fight does continue yeah stay strong thank you very much thanks for having us on no worries have a good day and a good weekend yeah you too Cheers. bye bye wow um there's a lot to think about there's a lot to, further information look up yeah, check out the Squat Space website at squatspace.com. Check out um, Aboriginal 10 embassies. Check out if there's any local Aboriginal 10 embassies. Hell, why not even look up who are the local landowners and the people that you should be actually leveraging whatever privilege you've inherited as descendants of the colonisers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm almost done. We're almost done. We're about 15 minutes, um, 10 minutes to go now. I think we had... Um, I think we, we need to pay a bit of attention to these statements after just kind of really delving right into this colonial model that keeps poor people poor, keeps marginalised people um, divided, keeps them isolated, keeps them... um, Keep, keeps them away from um, knowledge, you know, controlling that knowledge, controlling information um, and then interpreting um, that information how they will um, depending on how they best benefit from it, um, you know, which is very, very sly, very, very... Um, how, how, how can I say this? Um, again, you know, this is the whole point of once you understand this stuff, why you automatically have to leverage it is because, um, you know, kind of if you're holding on to these things, you're kind of still um, still kind of participating in the genocidal model um, and keeping poor people poor and keeping dispossessed people dispossessed. Um you know, in amongst all this, they're over here giving our land away as well as appropriating our cultural knowledges to justify new waves of dispossession after already dispossessing us for 230 years. Um, so you, today, how we're, how you so today we're talking <laughs> about, we've been talking about planning as the kind of colonial mechanism that has kind of been operating since arrival to co-opt and dispossess Indigenous people, co-opting their knowledges to best suit the intent of the settler colonial ventures themselves. Um, And we think we're going to bring that now back down to a very real and a very um, contemporary issue within our city of Sydney. Uh, Earlier this year in the, I think it was in March, um, the Greater Sydney Commission, which is headed by Lucy Turnbull, um, the wife of our current prime minister, our, um, our fearless white male leader, yep, um, had who who uh, runs as the CEO of a uh, and 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 main chief commissioner of a uh, think tank around cities and city and city planning um, for New South Wales, and we are um, we are loath to tell you that they in the next couple of I mean in the next few decades we're going to be redistributing the city. With the cities turning into three cities, what they've called the uh, metropolis of three cities, and we've t- titled this this episode "The Tale of Three Cities" because we want to talk about the ways and the the narratives around planning and the logics and how currently today we're seeing the same things happening: the 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 co-option of indigenous knowledge to implement the needs and the ventures of the colonial power and 
Um, we're going to just read from the front page of this document. We'll go into a little bit more detail. We've run long today, so we've got some more catch-up that mm -hmm. we can do in the next couple of next couple of weeks talking about Waterloo. We're going to do that at another point. Um, I just but, think this just really sets the reality exactly. of, of everything, what we're talking about. Exactly. So, um, Lorna, if you could start with this and we'll pick this apart as we go. Um, well, I which which one are you looking at? This one or this one? We've got a lot of paperwork. We're looking at the we're, look, we're like newsreaders today. I know. Um, no, we've got the Aboriginal people. The Aboriginal the, people. The first page written by Lucy Turnbull herself. And it says, and this is written by this is written by a white woman. Aboriginal people know if you care for country, it will care for you. Um, first lines, I'm going to try and read this without unpacking it. You jump in. Mm. Um, since time immemorial, Aboriginal people have managed, cultivated and cared for the landscape where Sydney was established and continues to grow. Aboriginal people hold profound knowledge, understanding, obligation and custodianship of the landscape, often expressed as connection to country. Country is a multi-dimensional, consisting of people, animals and plants reaching into the sky, covering all the land and sea and extending underground. Connection to country is deeply personal, fami familial, connecting Aboriginal people to everything and to each other in unity. But who's like, I mean, like who's, why aren't you crediting the person who gave you this insight? Like, what what, are, what I'm interested in um, was did she just recognise our right to, and, to land and resources? Today. Um, <laughs> but her husband still denies it. Um, yeah. um, and this whole economic model is built on that. Um, so you want to acknowledge it, but you still want to deny it and cut off access to it. Um, moving right along. Expressed through stories, song, dance, hunting, fishing and gathering, as well as traditional Aboriginal welcome to country protocols. So there's like this, this like romanticised idea of this like <laughs> interpersonal relationship that Indigenous people have, this like community, this familial, familiar connections, which, which exist in spite of Sydney, in spite of mm. colonialism, mm -hmm. not because of it, and don't mm -hmm. come into this conversation mm. thinking that you can co-opt this, co-opt our sense of being and our sense of connecting with each other and with and with country mm. when you have up until mm. this point done everything you possibly can to to try and strip those rights from everybody in this country. Let's just remember that this is a white woman that has written it, but not just any white woman. This is the partner of the. The, the person who runs this country at the moment, who sits at the top of all these lies mm. and sorts them all out um, and keeps perpetrating those words. Um, connection to go. country is embedded and alive in the many layers and history of the greater Sydney landscape. Aboriginal understanding and respect of the landscape is akin to the aims and objectives of the... Of the Metropolis. Of a metropolis of three cities to ensure planning and land use of the greater Sydney region is respectful, equitable and sustainable. Okay, so <laughs> equitable. Okay. Sorry, I'm yelling. But <laughs> equitable right now. What um what well. this is not this is this is this is where I really find this very hard to believe and really, really difficult to understand and grasp what your definition of equitable means right now. Um because we're not talking about yeah. equality, right? So you could you could maybe come in here with your understanding of Australia being a multicultural space and all this other shit, blah, 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 you know, since settlement, all this other stuff. Have a conversation with us about how everyone has rights to space and, you know, that's equality. But if we're going to talk about equity, equitable mm. access in this city mm. and you're not fundamentally, you're only going to very surface layer talk about Indigenous culture and Indigenous issues, like we need to see concrete structural 
change. We need to see material improvement of Indigenous Australians across the country for this to be equitable. You've used the wrong word, babe. They're still, um, they're still dealing in stolen goods, though. Mm. Um, and, you know, calling it sustainable and equitable. Um, the three cities, the Eastern Harbour City, the Central River City and the Western Parkland City, reflect the Aboriginal relationship with these lands. Years beyond recorded time as saltwater country, muddy river country and running water country. How dare they use those terms after they polluted these ancient water systems that have been developing over millions, millions of years. Destroyed, what, within two years, 50 years, 230 years? And now you want to use those terminology to subdivide this space, this colonised space? Ah, water. See how much water is disrespected? Mm, exactly. Greater Sydney holds a special place in Australia's history. No shit. Um, because it is where the first major point of contact occurred between European and Aboriginal people. However, during the making of the city post-1788, the multidimensional nature of country has never been deeply considered, reconciled or remembered. You're doing it in this, actually. Um, for example, many contemporary roads and public parks rest upon ancient traditional Aboriginal tracks and camping grounds. The future design and development of Greater Sydney, including the name of trees, roads, Roads, parks and suburbs will draw from the richness Aboriginal culture and custodianship of the land can offer for the whole community and environment. Who are you gonna culture being appropriated mm. for white use. What is the point of naming anything after our Aboriginal culture or people and then filling it with the people that our people have been dying for so you mm. fellas can reap the benefits and the blood money? Mm. Um, how dare you? How dare you create Brangaroo and suburbs like Pemoy and... And, and house and fill them with white people mm. when these are the direct... It's a desecration of these people's memory. Mm. Stop desecrating our people's memory. Meeting ancient Aboriginal knowledge and the relationship with the greater Sydney landscape together with the contemporary land use and planning aims of the metropolis of the three cities will ignite a positive shared future for all of great Sydney people and its stunning environment. How triggered are we just, just reading like that, this? Just like that, ignite it. How ignite, 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 ignite this positive relationship. Ignite my shared future. Mm. We exist in spite of this shared future. Mm. Greater Sydney has the largest gathering of Aboriginal people in Australia with many families originating from homelands in wider New South Wales and throughout the nation. The Australian Bureau of Statistics 2016 estimates that 57,000 Aboriginal people live in Greater Sydney, representing approximately 9% of the national Aboriginal population. No shit. That's why we're you know, going off about you fellas experimenting with our lives. And um, pushing us out of Redfern. <sighs> How triggered? How triggered are we? We're going to need some counselling sessions and a debrief after this. Aboriginal land councils constituted under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act at 1983 so are major landowners' government areas. So, I don't know... Like, I, you can hear the paper, right? <laughs> I mean, you... To, in the same statement, acknowledge the time-old relationships, desecrated waterways, the, 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 the desecrated memories of, of, in, of important Indigenous people and place names, and then bring in this fucking... this neoliberal language of harking back to the memories of the land councils and the land rights acts to, and, and we can see straight through this, like 
this is so you this is you leveraging really a conversation through de- to necessitate the development of indigenous ho- holdings it's this is what we're talking about in terms of what's happening in redfern right now that plot of land next to redfern redfern oval you, uh, who wants to who wants to take bets who's this new train station is going to be called ilipa <laughs> this is this was my whole concern with yeah. the coming into this whole thing when they're playing with language with white people picking and choosing what is valuable in order to represent them not us or their accountability and complicity in it all okay um, so like ugh, aboriginal land council was constituted under the aboriginal land rights act of 18 of 1983 are major landowners in most local government areas empowered and resource to achieve the social, cultural, and economic aspirations of Aboriginal people through these land holdings. As corporate citizens and unique players within the greater Sydney economy, they should be afforded the same opportunity to develop their sites as other landholders. Wow. And it's just like, it's like this. That's speaking specifically to what's happened in Redfern and what's the future for Waterloo right now. Mm. Look it up. Look up the Redfern Aboriginal Ten Embassy. Look up what happened with that. Um, and it goes on and on and on. Um, they use their lands to greatly benefit Aboriginal... What Did you just read that bit? No. Aboriginal land councils. Furthermore, when approved by consent authorities, Aboriginal land councils use their lands to great benefit for housing, community and cultural purposes, commerce and enterprise, increasing... Prosperity and social inclusion for greater Sydney's Aboriginal communities. It has taken 230 years for a shared understanding of greater Sydney's landscape to emerge. This shared vision will draw on both spirit and nature to guide respect, reconciliation and recognition, bringing the depth of Aboriginal culture and custodianship to the fore in the future planning of greater Sydney. Chief Commissioner Lucy Hughes Turnbull, AO. 230 years of shared understanding of great greater Sydney landscape to emerge. She's just kind of admitted that, you know, they only ever see value in this land after they've interpreted it, right? Mm. It's taken 230 years for them to even see the value of this land. How sad is that? Mm-hmm. After they've already decimated huge portions of our population to the point where we what represent 3% in our own country. Genocide is real. These mob got to stop trying to make out that they don't have to be accountable for this. The language is all very triggering. How dare these fellas use this history to justify further dispossessing black communities right here in the forefront of invasion. The shared... The, the, the shared 230 years should be the evidence to necessitate you giving the land back. Mm, the black heart not, that is this community beats in the face of this shit. Not, not, not the underpinning for a relation, a financial relationship for these, how did, however you put it, um, corporate citizens to sell their land to developers you need to understand that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land and, and there needs to be reciprocity for you existing on this country for the last 230 years. Hold up. I'm interested. I'm interested to know how these corporate citizenship can be acknowledged when Aboriginal citizenship of any kind is denied in this whole history of the founding of this country. Yep. White, white founding invasion of this country. Exactly. But when it comes to money... 
and the prospects of making money off us, we're corporate citizens now. Mm. Thanks a fucking lot. It's that idea of the waste. It's the, it's the land being wasted until it was ripe for development. And now this is that whole shift in the conversation around planning and language. The planning system is inherently dispossessive and inherently racist and inherently trying to claw away Indigenous sovereignty and take what it can at every moment. And this is written here for you by Lucy Turnbull. I hope that today's episode of Survival Guide has helped you to better understand and to better look at what is being offered to you as a citizen of this country and of this city. Um, to all the mob who are not here in Sydney right now, um, thank you for listening. Um, I have to go. Have to <laughs> you go. gotta go. Thanks a lot. Um, I've yeah. We just got to get out of here because this has been triggering. This has been full on. There's heaps of links. There's this this. This episode has been packed full of information for your benefit. Get to it. Get on it. We're out. We'll be back next Friday from 12 to 2. We're going to have a um, community forum in the next couple of weeks as well. Just putting on that on your... On the 16th. Thursday, uh, Thursday the 16th. Um, we're calling for everybody to, to come and talk to us about their maintenance issues. Let's talk about this willful neglect. Let's talk about ownership of these problems. Because if we don't, these fellas are going to start blaming us. And we'll talk and about... And there's even news about hitting people with bills after they've already neglected these houses and stuff like that. And so the three new options offered up by Communities Plus, we're going to cover those with the community and get an understanding of what everyone's thinking. Please come. You have an opportunity for us to share this platform with you and to spread your concerns and can spread the issue, spread the ideas around what you think is unacceptable about the way that public housing is being treated currently in this country. Um that's us. We've got to go. You've been listening to Survival Guide. I want to say thank you to the CBF and to Sydney Uni for helping us make this happen. Thank, thank you to Hannah for, for being an amazing producer. Thank you to Keg and our other interviewee for sharing their perspectives and what they've done today. Um, I have to go. We have to go. It's <laughs> We out. We out. Have a good weekend. <laughs> Stay black. <laughs>